0: listening to the Northside Christian Church sermon podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Good morning, Northside. If you're able to, would you stand as we read our text for this morning? I'm going to be reading from Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 10 through 14. I'll be reading from the NIV. You can read along with me. We'll bring it up here on the screen. You don't have to read out loud because I'll mess it up and make us all look silly. So um, we're going to just read with me. Um, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope, and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all of the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Amen. Would you have a seat? If you grew up in church, maybe this was one of your favorite Bible verses. I remember going off to Bible college with a bag full of favorite Bible verses that were subsequently destroyed for me um, because they were like, that's not what that means. And I, this was one of those verses. Um, and I don't, I'm not going to ruin your life or anything like that this morning. But the idea was um, once we started reading Scripture in context, we realized oh, there's a whole lot more to the way that I've been using this this text. And so if you grew up around church, you might, you might have, um, have memorized this verse and you might have others. And I had quite a few others like Philippians four thirteen, or the 23rd Psalm or first Corinthians 13, that whole chapter there I'd heard read at wedding after wedding, after wedding, and, and, and And as I get to college, I start to realize like one of the things that they say at Ozark Christian College all the time is, is that um, context is king, and so we started to read um, these scriptures in their context and and we were getting maybe just slivers of it right before we started reading in context, but then it started to add so much more meaning to what it actually was and so we fall in love with these verses because they 're so quotable and they 're so easy to remember, and they seem to have a direct connection maybe you've uh, you know it 's brought you through a moment in your life, and that that verse you 've really kind of hung on, which, which is great. Um, and I, I love Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Um, I love it. I think even more understanding the context of it, but before I thought, you know, like this, this is like the, the get out of trouble card, right? Like at anything that's going on in my life, any minor inconvenience, I can quote this verse to myself and say, you know, that, that God doesn't want harm for me, that he wants, he has plans to prosper me. And, And uh, plans to, you know, for for a future and all of this. And I started to think, and then when you read it in context, we've been walking through Jeremiah. And we start to realize this promise is given to Israel before they go into exile. Like, imagine, like, they're not just having, like, a bad day. They're having, like, their worst of days. And so this promise of a future is, in context, it it signals something very real and very huge for, for Israel. We've been we've been going through Jeremiah. Like I said, they're not having just a bad day; they're having the worst day. So, so for a nation that's about to lose everything, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is a, a promise. But it doesn't quite roll off the tongue for them. Like, can you imagine them like saying, I know we're headed to exile, but you know, you know, that, that, that I read on my coffee mug this morning that God has a plan to prosper me, and as we're drug off into slavery and drug off into Babylon and so, so there's 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 more to this, and we read it on for Israel, and I think eventually if we're reading the text faithfully, we can realize this that the two most important words in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven are not plans and prosper, but hope and future. It's, it's about the, the future and the hope that God is giving to Israel. It's not going to be an immediate thing. It's going to take a while. But God is going to give them that. He's given them that promise ahead of time. And one, of the, one of the things that we do at home a lot is what we call a redo. And it's not like we made that up or anything else. Like that, but like one of the kids or... Maybe one of the parents uh, does something that's you know against the rules, out of line, um, rude, whatever. uh, You know, kind of our code of conduct in our house, whatever that is. But um, when uh, when that happens, we 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 get to do a redo. We just say, hey, hey, buddy, would you like to do a redo, or would you like to try that again? And a lot of times it works. A lot of times it's just like, yeah, I didn't realize I screamed that at you, so let me. Let me say that to you instead of uh, of a different way. So like, for instance, like you could walk back, you know, to your room and instead of coming out and jumping off of the coffee table to the couch and then roundhouse kicking your sister in the face. These are all hypothetical illustrations. This would never happen in our house. Or hey, let's let maybe that response. Like when I when I said hey, hey buddy, it's time for dinner. Like the response that I got back. Maybe you know you were frustrated that you had to stop what you were doing. So would you like a redo with that? It happens. It doesn't. It doesn't work every time. But sometimes it's just as simple as that. Um, just to give just to give the kids and the parents a chance to go. I was wrong there. Let me try that again. And like I said, us as parents, we, we do it, we do it as well. And so dad has gotten his fair share of redos. And I remember one time just a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance for a redo. Um, I raised my voice and lost my temper. So I get down on my son's level and I look him in the eyes like, buddy, I'm really sorry. Will you, will you give me a chance to do that again? And he looks me straight in the eyes and I, I swear he should be the one up here preaching every time this happens. But he goes, he goes, dad, of course, I'm going to give you a second chance every time, just like God does. And so I'm trying to figure out if he thinks he's God or Or if he's actually understanding, like, I want to be, I want to be like Jesus, because he's just like, yeah, you know, because he's got, you know, like four figurines and stuff. I'm not really sure. I'm not sure what's going on there. So, um, but, but that's just what, just like God, he's going to give a second chance. See, in Jeremiah chapter 29, God has Jeremiah send a letter to Israel because the talking is not working anymore. The prophecies are not working. He's got false prophets everywhere. So he sends them a letter to prepare them for exile. He's been warning them through this whole book, but now Babylon has actually come and taken some of the Israelites off. They've come and got the best and the brightest, and they've drugged them off to Babylon already, and they will be back for more, and they will eventually take the whole nation with them. And so the exile has begun. And God is really kind of giving them instructions and giving them a, a, a blueprint of how the next 70 years are going to look. This is what you're going to do when you get there, because you could spend your entire life there just fighting against the captivity. You could fight against it, and you probably won't survive, and uh, that that will be the end. So he says, um, he says, have sons and daughters, get married, have um, you know, have children, prosper in this land. Pray. He even says, he even says, to pray for the land that you're in, your captive land. Pray for your enemies. He starts to see all of this, and so this letter, it it says all this like. Get yourself comfortable, you know? Maybe if you, if you grew up anything like me, you've had a grounding like that. Where you're just like, well, I might as well make my room my favorite place because I'm there all the time. Like, go to your room, go to your room. You're like, ah, that's all right. That's where I wanted to be. So he's just like, make, make, this, make this, this could be really, really difficult. It's going to be hard on you. It's going to be slavery. It's going to be captivity. But you can prosper in this land. And also, God is not intending to just leave Israel there for debt. God does not leave them without hope. There is this promise in Jeremiah 29, 11, and all throughout the book of Jeremiah, we see the glimpses of these promises, and and it's one of our favorite promises, and maybe we apply it a little too broadly, but here in its immediate context, we see that this is Israel's darkest hour, removed from their land. Their temple is soon to be destroyed. Their religious lifestyle is upended, the kings are corrupt, the prophets are lying, and in a time when Israel is about to get everything that they've been warned about, everything that they are are getting because they've refused to repent, God still goes down to their level and looks them in the eye and says, I'm always going to give you a second chance. I'm going to give you another chance. Israel is in desperate need of a redo. Our small group minister, John Presco, a couple weeks ago talked about covenants in the Old Testament. And he talked about just the idea of what a covenant is, his definition, a lifelong relationship with another person. And covenants aren't just an important theme in the Old Testament. I don't think it's a stretch to say that, that, that covenant is the most important theme in the Old Testament. To understanding what happens between God and his people. It's the marriage illustration that Jeremiah uses to show how unfaithful Israel has been to God. They have failed to uphold that bottom line. They had failed to, with this handshake agreement with God, they have failed to keep their hand in the deal. It was the plot line of God and his people. It's the basis of the law and everything that... It's it's how God would would, would relate to his people and also how his people would expect God to relate to them. So it's this idea. This is the covenant. These are the terms. These are the principles that we're going to live by. Theologian William Dyrus says it like this. In the Old Testament, the covenant rests on God's promise and lies at the heart of the biblical notion of history. It is the timeline. It's the core of the Hebrew understanding of their relationship with God. And so to say that a covenant is just a a thing that that happens in the Bible, we happen to see these covenants pop up from time to time, is is selling it short. It is the way that the Hebrew nation would, would understand God, that they would relate to God. And reading through the Old Testament, you see four major covenants that pop up. Now, these covenants are renewed and restated and revived, all of these covenants, but we see kind of the main ones kind of driving the story through the Old Testament. I borrowed this picture from the Bible Project project directly from their video that you can find on YouTube or their website, and we would have watched this, if you're doing engagement year of Bible engagement with us, we would have watched this back in January, but if you've slept since then, um, you might want to go back and do a redo on it. It was one of the first videos we watched when we started the year of Bible engagement, such a fantastic video that just kind of... Displays how all of these covenants connect and kind of arc throughout the Old Testament and bring us to the New. And so, um, what we see is that God extends these four covenants to his people, and Israel goes, Oh, for four. Every single time. Each time they fail to hold up their end of the handshake because, because they refuse to repent. But now God is going to send them into exile for 70 years. This is much longer than 40 days and 40 nights on the ark. This is much, this is much longer than 40 years they wandered in the desert. You see, God is ready now to, to let a whole generation pass to prosper or to, 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 to process this again. So, this whole generation, 70 years, is going to pass before they get rescued. But, of course, we see in the Psalms that God is slow to anger. He's gracious. He's rich in love. And they would have known these and had these messages in their heart. And they knew that God was faithful. But we see, as we come throughout, throughout the book, we see little glimpses, but it's never more explicit than when we get to chapters 30 and 31, where, where we start to see how these prophecies will actually rescue Israel. How is God actually going to do this? And true to literary style, Jeremiah uses three metaphors to describe not only the problem that Israel has, but then the prophecy of how he's going to rescue them. I like to, I like to say that it's like the mirror and, and the medicine. So the mirror of here's the problem, here's what you're facing right now, and then the medicine of like, this is, this is the cure, this is how I am going to rescue from that. And so the first one, this is in Jeremiah chapter 30, the first one is breaking the yoke of bondage. Breaking the yoke of bondage. We've seen this illustration before. Uh, we've seen him use this illustration of, of the, the bond that holds on to uh, Israel that's, that's around their neck. We saw that Hananiah came and said, this is only going to be a couple years, and he broke it or whatever. But God is use, reusing that illustration and saying, there is going to be bondage. You are going to be taken into, te- into captivity but I'm going to be the one to break it. Look at what he says in verses, uh, chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, and verse 11. It says, It shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord, that I will break the yoke from your neck. And I will, I will burst your bonds, and the foreigners shall, uh, shall no longer make a servant of you. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And then the, verse eleven says this: "For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make an, a full end to all of the nations among a, wh- whom I scattered among whom I scattered you, but you will not you will ah, you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you with just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished and so God is showing them not only is he showing in the mirror. But also the medicine, the mirror of like, uh, this is what you're up against. You are up against punishment because of your own sin, because of your lack of repentance, because you have not held up your end of the covenant. But then there's also the medicine, the medicine that says, I will come and heal you. I will heal this land. I will heal you as a people. And it would be easy for Israel to kind of look around at all the other nations and be like, what about their gods? They don't follow the one true God. What about all of this? This reminds me of when I was growing up and me and my brother would get in trouble at the same time, like we'd get in trouble doing the same thing. And then my parents would punish him first, like I could hear, through the walls tiny little trailer house and be like, he's really getting it. And they're like, you're the oldest, you should understand, you should do better. And I'm just in there like, yeah, you should do better, whatever. And my parents could like hear me like snickering or like the other parent would walk in or whatever, you know, those, those dual parents, like it's tricky, but, <clears throat> but as, uh, you know, they would like give you that kind of snap look and be like, oh, you're not, you're not getting off scot-free, right? Like, remember you're a middle child. No one will ever know that you existed, right? So... <laughs> No one can hear you scream. No, but this is, uh, th- and that's, that's what it was. Like I would snicker and be like, yeah, he's really getting there. Like, oh yeah, well, you're also getting it. You're not off the hook. God tells Israel here, he says, he says I, will, um, I will deal with the nations that I've scattered you amongst. I'm going to deal with them, but I'm also going to deal with you. I will not leave you by any means. I will not leave you punished. I will punish you with ju- in a just manner. And so God is, is promising to save his people. But just like that, he's, he's promised he's going to break that yoke of slavery off of their necks. But also, just as he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, he is faithful to do it again. But, but this time, you see, it wasn't, it wasn't Israel's fault the first time that they fell into slavery. Not particularly, but this time it definitely is. They're getting, they're, he, has, he has showed them the path. Continue down this path, this is where you're going. And this time it's a self-inflicted wound, which is the second metaphor we see in in verse 12. God says that he's coming healing the incurable wound. Healing the incurable wound. He says, your injury, this is verses 12 through 14, your injury is incurable. Your wound, most severe. You have no defender in your case. There is no remedy for your sores. There's no healing for you. All of your lovers have forgotten you. No one, and, and they no longer look after you. For I have struck you as an enemy would, the discipline of someone cruel because of your erroneous guilt and immeasurable sins. That's the mirror. You see the mirror. But then God says, nevertheless, this is verses 16 and 17, nevertheless, all who devoured you will be devoured. All your adversaries, all of them will go off to exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered. All who raid you will be raided. But I will bring you health and I will heal you of your wounds. This is the Lord's declaration, for they call you outcast, Zion, whom no one cares about. God says, I care. So we see the mirror, and we see the medicine, and I think it would be amiss to not stop here and acknowledge that if, if you spend too much time just staring at the mirror, then you wear that, that yoke of, of guilt and shame, and you, you look at it and go, I do have an incurable wound. And you don't, you don't really need a mirror because you, you stare at the mirror every single morning. The devil reminds you every single thing that you've ever done wrong and you disqualify yourself from the grace of God. And you say, like, yeah, there is something wrong with me. There is something incurable. And every time you try to fill it with something else, you only end up feeling like more of a failure or more of a sinner or more judged or dirty or looked down on. Verses like this, again, can be dangerous when we pull them out of context. Remember, Israel is not seeing the mirror. God is continuing to show them the mirror. Do you see the incurable sin that you have? Do you see the big gaping wound on the front of your face? Do you see it? And they're just like, I don't see a problem here. I don't, I don't see a problem. with." with. So they continue to, to live in their own way and follow their own prophets and listen to what they want to hear. But if for you, you hear a verse like this, and it, it, it can be convicting. But there becomes a point where conviction becomes something where you're just staring in the mirror and you're not so much interested in the medicine, you're just interested in the mirror. And so you stare and you get more guilt ridden and you get more depressed and you get more upset that there's no cure for it. There's just something broken in you. That is not the gospel. Some of us need the mirror this morning. Some of us need to see how wounded we are. But for some, you're so aware of your flaws that you disqualify yourself from the grace of God. God is not just giving them a mirror and telling them that, that their sin is a problem, but he's also giving them the medicine. All of these texts, it's the mirror and the medicine. The Lord brings healing, ultimate healing of incurable wounds. And so, yes, God is giving them the real conviction that they need, but he doesn't just say, I'm going to send you off. There's no, there's no promise of return. There's no medicine to cure this. Good luck. You, you made your bed. Now sleep in it. But he gives them a promise. He gives them a medicine. He gives them a cure. The third metaphor that's used, he's going to break them out of oppression. He's going to deal with their sin problem. And he's going to, lastly, revive the wasted land. Reviving the wasted land. It says in in, uh, chapter 30, verse 18 and 19, I will certainly restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and show compassion on his dwellings. This is what it's going to look like. Every city will be rebuilt on its mound. Every citadel will stand on its proper site. Thanksgiving will come out of them. A sound of rejoicing will multiply them. And they will not decrease. I will honor them, and they will not be insignificant. This is the medicine. God is going to heal their land. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem. But, before, but after that, he gives them the medicine. He's kind of doing this backwards here. Look, this is verses 23 and 24. Look, a storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone out, churning a storm. It, it will whirl about the heads of the wicked. The Lord's burning anger will not turn back until he has completely fulfilled the purposes of his heart. In time, you will understand it. I'm reminded of over, over 11 years ago now, when my best friend and I were working at a church in Texas, and we heard the news of what had happened in Joplin, Missouri. Both of us went to school in Joplin, Missouri. It was our Christian college, and so we started texting some of our work friends and saying, "How are we? How are we going to help? What what is something we can do as a, as a church that's that's miles and miles away?" And we had so many ministry connections through there, and we're connecting with people. What's what's going on on the ground there? All of that stuff. And and I remember throughout the week. Um, I think it was, I think it was by Tuesday, they had a giant U-Haul truck just parked in the church parking lot and church, um, church members could come and bring stuff. People from the community could come and we had pallets of bottled water and, um, toilet paper and paper towel, all of these sort of things, diapers, everything. People brought some really weird stuff too, but that's, that's not really the point of the story. I was like, I don't need you snow skis, but, um, <laughs> really weird. Uh, we didn't take those, but, um, but yeah, it's like like everybody starts to bring you stuff, and so then we decided that me and my me and my buddies like we were going to drive up there and to visit some of our friends who still worked and lived in the Joplin area, and so we take the truck and we drop it off at one of the distribution centers, and um, someone who was there. I mean, this is this is probably Thursday, Friday, the, the, you know, after the tornado, and one of our buddies there was just like, "Would you like to Would you like to go on a prayer walk with us? We're doing a prayer walk this afternoon," and so we drove completely to the west side. Um, where we'd actually started with a work group there, and we we cleaned up some debris and that, and then we just started walking. We walked miles throughout, and it was one of those those just surreal things where you're just walking, and you're just like, you can't really tell where you are, but then you can look up, and you can see all the way across town. You're like, okay, I kind of get where I am now, because all of the trees were wiped out, and it's just like everything's about the same height, like you can just see for miles. But then I remember uh, uh, about a year and a half after that, me and Bree moved, to Springfield here and I actually get to, I get to visit Joplin a little more often, got friends there, you know, go back to the school, that sort of stuff. And, and, and every time I go back, there's like a little bit more rebuilt in the community. And if you, if you find yourself in that, in that community, you've seen it like the, the difference. Or you were there before and you saw kind of the desolation and now you start to see new shops popping up and you see new people moving into town and you see new houses and all of this sort of stuff start to spring up. And it was like you looked at the map and you could see the map and everything's just brown. And now when you go, you see colorful trees and bushes and you start to see, you know, beautiful houses and all of this start to pop up and businesses and just flourishing. When I, when I read this text, that's kind of what I think of when he says that, that that God is going to restore Jacob and restore the tents of Jacob. And things are going to start to pop up here again. There's this, there's actually the story a couple chapters later where God tells Jeremiah before they're taken into captivity, he wants him to go buy a plot of land in the battlefield where this whole thing is going to take shape, which is just bonkers. It's just crazy. Like I want you to go buy some land that's surely just going to be ruined and left for 70 years to die. But this was a this was a picture of what God was going to do for Israel. He said, I want you to go buy that land, I want you to pay the price for it, and I want you to to, to hold on to it, because God does have a plan for Israel. God does have a plan for his people. And then we see the the fulfillment of that prophecy is that God does bring them back. So Jeremiah does this as, as foreshadowing that the land will be inhabited again. They are going to be set free. He's going to break that yoke of slavery, and God is going to deal with their sin problem in in an amazing, humongous way, and they will have their home restored to Israel once again. Israel is getting their redo. It's coming. The Lord promises again. But this covenant is going to be different. Israel, once we get to chapter 31, we start to see that God has much more planned than just restoring everything back to where it was. He's not just going to bring them back to their homes, rebuild what you had, we're going to make another covenant that you're probably going to break. Here's my hand again. No, God's not going to be mocked in this, but he's going to revive so much more than just the old covenant. Turn to chapter 31, starting in verse 31. If you've got Bibles, we'll have it up on the screen as well. But in chapter 31, verse 31, here's what God says to his people. Again, this is pre-exile, while it's happening. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And the houses of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, declares the Lord, he says, I was faithful to them every time they were not for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After these days declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall shall each one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Saying there's, no, there's no reason to teach your family because everyone's going to know me. It's going to be in the family. They will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This promise that's coming 70 years into the future, God gives to Jeremiah. Jeremiah gives to the people, but it would come as no surprise that God is going to use covenant. Because if covenant is the main way that the Hebrews understand God, it's no different moving forward. It wasn't God's covenant that was the problem before. It was the way that Israel responded. It was, it was the flawed Israel's response. So now there's a new covenant. There's a new covenant now. It's it's important to remember when we look at biblical prophecy, especially here in Jeremiah. It's important to, to remember that when we when we look on fulfillment of prophecies, that we're looking at uh, what scholars call two horizons. the The first horizon is the immediate. What's going to happen 70 years after this prophecy? Which is we we know from the book of Ezra that in 538 BC that the people do come back to their land. They are released from captivity. And that God does do what he says he's going to do and break the yoke of slavery. He deals with their iniquity. He forgives them and brings them back to their place and he revives the land. And this is, this is when the promises we read about in God, he's breaking the oppression, healing the wounds, reviving the land. These all come to fruition. But also in this prophecy, there is a, there's another horizon. So we, we've, we've seen that happen and we're going to see that happen in the book of Ezra. But also this second horizon that... that, that Jeremiah keeps referring to this, this righteous branch of David, this new covenant, because we know that just restoring Jerusalem to deal with the problem, it does. It doesn't deal with the problem. We know that Israel goes back. And as a matter of fact, it's going to lead to them failing again, 400 years of silence between the end of our old Testament and the beginning of our new Testament. And we're going to see that Israel fails again. Their temple is going to be ruined again. It's all going to... They are still not going to get it. And so Israel is going to lose it all again. This is not the ultimate redo. The redo that God has in mind will change everything for Israel. But it also changes everything for us as well. the The New Testament talks about the Gentiles being grafted in as the new Israel to being part of this plan. So when we start to read New Covenant, we start to see the Old Testament turn towards this idea of New Covenant. We go, this is us. This is part of our story. I just got a picture up here, a little bit of comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You see, we know the New Covenant was written on stones a couple of times, actually. Drugged down the mountain and they could see it. Written, and the New, Test, the, the New Covenant will be written on the hearts of people. It was... a. Uh, uh, Paul, who writes in Second Corinthians chapter three, verse three, when he says that uh, that it's no longer like just letters that he's sending, he's sending. He's saying we are the letter. It's like the testimony that we give is not just like what's written in our Bibles or what's you know, carved in stone wherever, but it's, it's, it's our hearts and our lives that we live moving forward. So God says, this is the new thing. You're no, no longer going to um, you know, haul this, you know, these, these tablets around in an ark and all that sort of stuff. You are going to be the tablets. You are the law. I'm going to write it on your hearts. The old covenant was based on changing conduct. Remember all of the 600 plus um, commands that we read through. That we all made it through faithfully, right? We read every single one of them as we went through. Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy were like so many commands. It was about changing the conduct. We're like, can I do this? Well, there's probably a rule for that. If there's not, we'll write another one. So it, it, was, it, it dealt with everything. Changing the conduct. But, but the new covenant deals with changing character. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says that no one's going to be justified by the law. No one's going to be justified by their works. But justified by faith. Uh, the old covenant was based on what you did, what you did or what you didn't do. Did you hold up your end of the deal? Did you hold up your end of the covenant with the promises that God made? Did you do it? And the new covenant's based on Christ's work. First Peter chapter three, verse 18 says that Christ suffered to bring us to God. We didn't have to drag the tablets up to him. We didn't have to, to, to drag the list and go, look, I got like a 75%. You know, because we know that that's not good enough. Not one is righteous, not even one, Paul would say. And so we understand it's not based on our work, but on the work of Christ on the cross. This is the second horizon. The new covenant will be different and better in every way. I'm sorry. I choked up. The new covenant will be different and better in every way. Why? Because of who it's based on. Because it's no longer about us keeping our hands in there and continuing to shake. God, we're doing it, we're doing it, we're doing it. All right, God, I'm I'm holding up my end of the deal. It's no longer based on our work. But the new covenant is not based on what we do. It's based on something more reliable. The author of Hebrews would would say it's based on something more superior than our weak handshake. Hebrews chapter 8, we actually see this Jeremiah text This idea of the new covenant quoted word for word. But right before this quotation comes, the author says this, it says, but Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry and that, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant. So we're not just calling it a new covenant. It's not just a new or renewed. It's a better covenant. It's taking the place of the old one, which has been established on better promises. Why are the promises better? This is the Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? Because of Jesus. It's better because He's the one upholding it. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get rid of the law, but I came to fulfill it in every single measure so that you could have life. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. Jesus could have come with the He could have come back with the tablets, right? And been like, oh, you're all in trouble now. Just a giant mirror. Everybody look and see how bad you've messed up. See how bad I didn't mess up that. But he didn't. He said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but I came to save it. Paul would write one of my favorite verses about Jesus and the law, but it says all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All of the promises find their yes. Is God really going to keep that promise? Jesus is the seal. Jesus is the yes of that promise. That's why it's better. That's why it's a better promise. You know, our modern Bibles are divided into Old and New Testament. And that word testament, I don't know what you think of when you hear that word, um, but I think of two things. I think of the Bible and the mints you could buy at Mardell. Those are the only things I think of. I don't think I use the word testament anywhere else in my life. Um, but those mints and here. Well, that word testament actually is a holdover from the Old English, so we can thank you, um, Mr. King James. Um, I don't think you have to say mister when you say king, do you? I don't think that's like a... That might be offensive. Um, but, but, but that's where we get that. So we had the New Testament and the Old Testament, and that just kind of stuck. So it's stuck in our Bibles. And if you're reading digitally, like on the app, you may not even know that there's two things. You're like, it seems like a lot happened in between here and here. Maybe there's a difference. Well, there is. There's about 400 years of difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's actually probably more accurate to call those Old Covenant and New Covenant, because when that word testament was attached to it, those words really kind of meant the same thing. It doesn't really mean anything anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that much so much anymore. But if we understand it as new testament or New Covenant and Old Covenant, we start to see what's taking shape here. In Jeremiah, we start to see the scope of what God is doing. And then when we get to the life and the teachings of Jesus... We see the shape of this new covenant. Jesus is going to teach about the new kingdom, so pay attention when you see Jesus say things like, the kingdom of heaven is like. He's not just using similes for a purpose of getting everybody's attention or being clever. He's saying this is how it's going to be different. When Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, you've heard it said this, but I now tell you this. He's giving the terms and the promises of the new kingdom, of the new covenant. It's Israel's redo. But now it includes all of God's children. All of God's children, including us here today, who've been grafted in. I like to tell our college life students when we're reading we were reading Galatians a couple months ago, we're going through Book of Galatians, and Galatians is just filled with like this explanation. How does the Old Testament, the Old Covenant fit in with the New Testament and the New Covenant? And I like to say that we, we, we get to read the Bible backwards and it's not something I would recommend literally doing. Cause then you like write books about the end times and all that stuff. So don't like actually read it backwards. But when you read it with knowing the end in mind, it's like watching a movie that, you know, there's a sequel to that stars Tom Cruise. Like you can't go back and watch the old, you know, like, like, uh, whatever the old Tom Cruise movies and go like, well, he's, he's definitely not going to die in this movie because he's in like 10 other movies after this, right? So he has to live. We we read the Old Testament knowing Israel's going to make it. Israel's going to be okay. Yeah, there's going to be some that are cut off and there's going to be some grafted in and Israel's going to grow the new Israel. But but we're going to see like there is a sequel to this. So we're not coming to the end going like, "Ah, oh, I hope God keeps his promises. I hope I hope you know that, that this doesn't end badly like it like it could." But no, in Jesus we see that God's promises, we get to read it backwards. We know that through Jesus, all of these promises are true, that all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so we get to see the pain of Israel that they go through. We get to see that they need a redo. And we get to see God's relentless pursuit of them. We watch him, like, every single time he gets down on his knee and he says, another second chance. And if you look back carefully at the Old Testament promises, the old covenants were there were glimpses of this second horizon every single time we start to see it. And you might read it and you'd be like, oh, I, never, I didn't notice that there. Even when the very first covenant to Noah, when God tells Noah, he says, I will bless all generations and protect every living thing. All generations and every living thing. That doesn't just include Israel. I mean, Israel is just, it's just Noah right there. Like that's all that's there. And so we've got Noah. He says, all generations, I'll protect everything. Then we get to Abraham. God gives the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, which is so huge, which, which propels everything towards Israel, towards Jesus, towards that. It says in the Abrahamic covenant, it says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will give you as many descendants as there are among the stars. Those are God's promises. And then he also promises every nation of the world will be blessed through you. Every nation of the world, the whole world, it's always been there. Then when we get to Moses and the Israelite covenant, we see that all of the peoples of earth would see Israel's obedience or lack of obedience. They would see and they would believe. That was the point of the covenant was that all the nations of the earth, that everyone would see how loving and kind and gracious and slow to anger and relentless God is in pursuit of his people. And he wants that for the whole world. That was always the plan. Now, Israel didn't do a very good job of modeling that and showing the world, hey, God is so faithful to us, so we're faithful to him. But that second horizon is always there. So we even see that God loved the world so much. The world, the whole world, not just Israel, but all of his children that he would give his son. And maybe that, I think, is the danger for me. is I, I like I don't really read backwards enough. So... When we read Jeremiah twenty-nine, I start at Jeremiah twenty-nine and specifically eleven. I, lo- I love that verse, but here, reading and just applying that to my life can be can be a problem. You see, I want to jump straight from my problems to my prospering, without seventy years in between. I don't want that part. I want to jump straight from my pain to God's plans for me, without having to go through the the rigorous part of actually looking in the mirror and seeing what's wrong with me and God putting me through the discipline of breaking the yoke of slavery and curing my sin and dealing with the real problems deeper. But if we read this backwards, and I don't mean actually backwards, but knowing what Israel is going through, that this is not a pep talk, but this is a promise for a hope and a future. So, so, so to close, I, I think I, think I want just, to just do that. instead of Instead of just jumping to 29... Let's read backwards a little bit. Maybe if we're going to take a verse from Jeremiah chapter 29 out of context, which I don't recommend doing, but if we're going to, let's back up a few verses and read verses 12 and 13. Because this was really the conditions of the promise. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. See the humility? And I will hear you. You will seek And find me when you seek with all your heart. You see, God has extended a promise of a new covenant. He puts his hand out once again for a new covenant. A superior covenant based on better promises. And Jesus comes to be the other side of that covenant. It's not about how how hard we can shake our hands on that end. How hard can we work to fulfill it? Jesus comes to be the other hand. Jesus comes and his broken body breaks the yoke of slavery that you carry. The sin that that holds you down. His blood heals the wound of incurable sin. He takes, he takes that off of our plate. We don't have to heal that wound. We don't have to walk around broken and scared just like holding up the mirror. Well, I'm just I'm just a terrible, terrible person. I've failed every single time. The devil says yes. Jesus says yes. But Jesus has a plan, something to do with it. And so his blood heals the wound of sin. His resurrection opens the door to new life. And things start to spring up. New life, new color across the desolate land. And this promise is for you this morning. As it was repeated by Jesus. When Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Sounds a whole lot like, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. So we knock and the door is open. We seek and we find. We ask and we receive. Because God's mercies are are new every single morning. And he will always get down on the knee, eye to eye level with us and say, I'll always give you a second chance. Because his promises endure. And so for you this morning, if you need a redo, if you're online with us this morning, you want to drop us a message in the chat. If you want to go to our website there, northsidechristianchurchnet slash decision, you can do that. We could be in touch with you. If you're here in the room, as we worship our way out of here, i want to have these doors opened here off to your right. I would love to talk about redus I'd love to talk about redus with you this morning. What does it look like to have a cure for the incurable sin? What does it look like to break the yoke of sin in your life? What does it look like to have new, bright and vibrant everlasting life spring up inside of you I'd love to talk if you want to join me over here at decision point as we stand together and worship our way out of here up the north side Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.